um, has his degree, his graduate degree from American Public University, correct? Yep. He has been teaching at Joliet Junior College, where he is professor of history and sociology. Uh, he's a loyal White Sox fan yes. as well. So on all these points, I would like to welcome Dennis Doyle. Thank you, John. Well, it's quite an honor to be here tonight. I have to tell a quick story. Last night, I was in Milwaukee giving this presentation. What's this weekend? What's happening Sunday? Oh. Bears-Packers game. I'm a flatlander. And what's my topic? Illinois regiments at Gettysburg. So I have all these Packer fans. And what do I say? I go, go Bears. Well, so if you ever give a presentation in hostile country, okay, of course, you know, Rodgers is, is 26 and 5 as a starter. So here I am talking about Illinois regiments and Bear Packer weekend, and we're just terrible. So it was, it was, it was fun. They're really nice people up there. They have a great, great round table. Um, I've been a member for many years here. And it's an honor to speak uh, to uh, Chicago Roundtable. Um, the first roundtable in 1940, as Mark pointed out. Um, but I want to say this. It's up to us. We're the voice. Who, you know, the people I'm going to talk about tonight, they're as alive as you and I are. Their voice will be spoken tonight. A lot of you, how many people have been in Gettysburg in here? Yeah, most of you have. Okay, very good. You know, we had over a thousand people from Illinois that fought at Gettysburg. Their voice is going to be heard tonight. They're as live as they can be through us. Without us, who carries on the message of our Civil War history at roundtables? I do this professionally. You know, my wife, she has the real job. She's a math teacher. <laughs> That's work. I get to teach history and sociology. I have my master's in sociology from DePaul as well. And, of course, they play Marquette, and that hasn't been very good either. <laughs> so I was double whammy last night. The Paul Grad and a Bears fan. <laughs> not, not good. Marquette always kicked our butt. But my wife, she has a real job. She teaches math. I get to teach history. I'm very blessed. We, at Roundtables, are the backbone of Civil War history around this country and around the world, across the country and around the world. We have a lot of Civil War authors in here. You're the backbone. You carry on this voice. They speak through us. They're alive. I'm going to talk about Marcellus Jones. He's buried in Wheaton, but he's here. Their voices are here, and I hope if I do my job tonight, you'll hear those voices. A lot of you know a lot about Gettysburg. Many of you have been there. I'm going to talk about them. But their spirit is alive, and their life through us. We are the backbone of Civil War history. And you can be very proud of that. We speak for them. We speak for them. Marcellus Jones died in 1900 at 70 years of age. 121 years later, we're talking about him. We speak for him. That's a very honorable thing. We should never forget that. Yes, we come for camaraderie. Yes, we come for our love of history. Well, we should never forget, not that we won't, that we do. We should never forget. We speak for those that went before us who defended this country at its darkest hour. I always loved my, uh, starting my presentation 
with the uh, Lincoln Memorial. The coolest thing about the Lincoln Memorial is that his son was there. We all know the tragedy of Lincoln's life. You know, his mother dying and, you know, uh, his son's dying. You know, he was murdered by a coward. Shot him in the back of the head. Didn't even have the guts to face him. He died because of the Civil War too, Lincoln. He was president for only four years. He lives through us as well. It's a very, when you, the first time I walked up to that, it was powerful, wasn't it? The Lincoln Memorial, powerful. We were talking about the World War II Memorial on the Mall, uh, Mark had mentioned earlier. Powerful stuff, powerful. So we dedicate tonight and every meeting we have to those that went before us. Their spirit lives through us. Um, the quick outline of the campaign, Lee, some of us went to Chancellorsville, Lee is at the apex of his power by July of 1863. He has a massive victory over Hooker at Chancellorsville in May of 1863. And remember, Lee is a professional soldier. What does he know? He knows he can't win the Civil War over a long period of time. He'll get ground down. Doesn't have the resources, doesn't have the manpower. He knows that. He loses Stonewall Jackson. The Army of Potomac went from 130,000 men in May of 1863 to about 90 by July in two months. The time is now. Lee knows that. Remember, all war is politics, right? Clausewitz, and you know, if you ever want to sound smart, quote Clausewitz, okay? It's great, I'm telling you. Always start a presentation by, voting, by uh, quoting Clausewitz. You don't even know what you're doing, just vote, quote him. You're, I do it to my students, oh my God, the guy quoted, wow, this is great. Google the guy, who is that? <laughs> Quick, <laughs> Mr. Google, tell us who this guy is. All, war is politics by other means, right? 1830, Clausewitz. Lee knows what? I've got to get France and Britain. I've got, to have, I've got to draw the Army of Potomac out into the open and crush them on the ground of my choosing. I've got to do that. The time is now. The time is now. Lee, as you all know, he leaves Frederick June 3rd, AP Hill, his corps. Remember, he developed another corps. He went from two to three. Uh, Lee did in the summer, 63. Comes up masterfully through Maryland and into Pennsylvania. What's unique about Pennsylvania? It's free soil. This is not Virginia. This is not Maryland. Pennsylvania is free soil. We're free men on free soil. How dare he bring his army north? Listen to what they say. Listen to what they said 50 years after the Civil War, those veterans. You know, the Virginia Monument at Gettysburg, the Union soldiers, they wouldn't let the Confederate flag be put on that monument. The Virginia Monument had to have the state of Virginia flag. They would not allow that. I mean, this is long after the war. This is free soil. It's different now. It's different now. Lee, the master general he was, with his right-hand man Longstreet, and two, un 
tested core commanders, Ewell and Hill. The time is now. You can't win a defensive war. He knows that. It's a political war. France and England, they've got to support us if we have a victory. He came close at Antietam in September of 1862 in Maryland. But now he's on free soil. Now he's on free soil. That's different. Listen to what they say. Listen to what they say. Reynolds. There's no way a Corps commander, Reynolds was a 42 years old, great commander. They offered him a job, he said, nah, not for me. <laughs> the Army of Potomac, you know. <laughs> eh, you know, he, he knew a guy. <laughs> but you're on free soil. Where's Reynolds from? He's from Pennsylvania. He had no business being up there with the Iron Brigade. Those are tough, hard veterans. He's on free soil. That's we, we, part of the Gettysburg story it's, that it's not told enough. It's not told enough. Trudeau talks a lot about it in his book. You know? So, you can't talk about Illinois at Gettysburg without talking about John Buford. The best of the best. By the way, he lived most of his young life in Illinois. There's that beautiful monument. He's a cavalry officer. But what is he? He's studying west. And there's Reynolds behind him, who's his friend, John Reynolds. Look at Buford. Beautiful monument, looking down west, watching the Confederates come down. Ever the masterful tactician that he was. Buford is the best cavalry officer they have. Eric Wittenberg says that over and over again. He's so right. Buford's 37 years old in 1863. He's smart, he's tough, he's disciplined. He's the best of the best. He really respected the 8th and 12th Illinois Cavalry. Buford served in the old army. West Point grad, 48, goes out west. He serves with Henry Heath and General Warren at Blue Water Creek in Nebraska. Blue Water Creek was an action against the Ogallagala Sioux. Crazy Horse was an Ogallagala Sioux. You ever been to western Nebraska? It's right off of I-80, not too far from I-80, Blue Water Creek. You know, it was one of the first important actions of the Plains Indian Wars. But it's interesting that they served together, Heath, Henry Heath, Warren, and Buford. These are very experienced officers by the time the Civil War comes. I love this line. After the fire on Sumter in 61, Buford comes home. I'm sorry, goes to Washington, D.C. He comes through his old home in Kentucky. And I always love this quote. You know, I got a letter, a letter from the governor of Kentucky. Offers me anything I want. Anything I want. And my answer was, I'm a captain in the United States Army, and I intend to remain one. 
No question of the man's loyalty there. I intend to remain one. And yes, he did. Had it been a difficult time, don't you think? You know? We have plenty of folks in here who, who are or have been in the military, you know? I always loved this the night before. Buford, by the way, 8th Illinois Cavalry, first into Gettysburg on the afternoon of the 30th. Buford had a lot of respect for the 8th Illinois. All volunteer, we'll talk about that in a second. What is Buford telling Devins? Devin. Thomas Devins, a New Yorker. He is uh, in the New York militia, what we would call today probably the National Guard. I think Devin was a little bit of a politician. He's a full board colonel. He's probably looking for a star. He's probably looking for Buford for a little bit of help down the line, don't you think? As we say in Chicago, he knew a guy, you know? <laughs> right? He's been at war for two and a half years. Devin was a good commander. You know? He's got the second brigade. Buford's got some good troops here. What does he say? He says, no, the devil's the pay. The devil's the pay. You know, Buford had a sixth sense for these kinds of things. You know, he's just one of those guys. He just had a, he was so good. He, had, he had a sixth sense for this. He knew, really, why did Gettysburg happen? Because Buford decided it was going to happen there. He had had enough. I mean, Gettysburg, yeah, there's 10 roads that go in there, and it's an important place, but so were other places in southern Pennsylvania. Hanover being one. Cashtown, Chambersburg. I think Buford just had enough. But look what he says, that second part, right? You will have to fight like the devil. Buford is a warrior. And what, is he, what, what do warriors do? They decide who lives and who dies. He is going to make that decision now. Who's going to live and who's going to die? This is war. And he's telling Devin, Colonel Devin, I'm going to give you orders tomorrow that may get you killed. I'm going to ask you to kill another man. I'm going to give you orders to your cavalry troops that may get them killed. Who lives and who's going to die? I'm going to give those orders. Isn't that what war is? I mean, Sherman going through Georgia, make him howl. Of course I'm going to put my boot on your throat. That's war. What do you think this is? This is war. Buford decided this is, this is it. We're making our stand here. I'm, trying to, I'm tired of chasing them around the block. It's as good a place as any. Do they have good ground at Gettysburg? You betcha they do. Absolutely. McPherson's Ridge, Hur's Ridge, Knoxland's Ridge, absolutely. Oak Hill to the north of town, absolutely. Buford is the one who decides this. And again, what is he telling Devins? He's talking to him directly, man to man. I'm going to give you orders tomorrow that may get you killed. And you're going to give orders to your men to kill. 
to kill. Who lives and who's going to die? We should not forget that. I always love this picture of John Buford. It's a great picture. He's 37 years old. Obviously, you know the story of him. He, he dies in December of 63. You know what's really sad about this as well? I mean, first off, he lost his life at a very young age. And the Union Army and the Army Potomac lost a tremendous cavalry officer. You know? But what's really sad, too, his son, his young son, had just died that October of 63. I mean, can you, I mean, he's at war. <laughs> his son had just died. This is a great picture of Buford. This is his famous picture. My wife, Jamie, my better half over here, this, the brains of the outfit, right? <laughs> I'm just a worker bee. My wife always says he's got Hollywood good looks. Now, we've been married since 2008. Jamie, not once have you ever said, I've got Hollywood good looks. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> happy wife, happy life. Okay. <laughs> no, she hasn't, but uh, yeah. <laughs> He looks, does he, he looks the part, doesn't he? What's that word they use? Command presence, doesn't he? He looks the part. Isn't that true? Doesn't mean he's good at it, but he's, got, he's there's a sixth sense that to him. I mean, John Buford is good at it, obviously. It doesn't mean someone, you know. You know. He's the best of the best. I mean, just a no-nonsense kind of guy. I always love this Dale Gallon painting. He actually... Uh, has a studio in Gettysburg. Um, uh, I own this, uh, not the original. <laughs> not the original. <laughs> um, there's Buford. There's Tom Devins going north of town. You know, uh, there's William Gamble. We'll talk about him in a second. I hope that maybe, 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 Mark Kellis Jones, maybe, maybe John. Here's Route 30. You've got Mary Thompson House here. Here's McPherson's Ridge, Seminary Ridge. You, you don't want to be in the middle of that road today. <laughs> I, I just love that painting. You know, look at, look at Buford. Again, it's a painting. It's an artistic creation. But Buford, ever the confident commander. Setting up that tremendous line of defense that the 8th Illinois and 12th Illinois would be very much uh, a part of. The 8th Illinois is commanded by uh, John Beveridge. He just took the job. On June 9th at, at Brandy Station, John Forsick was shot and wounded. John Beveridge will later survive the war, later becomes governor of Illinois. Don't know if you want that in your resume. <laughs> We've only sent four people, four governors to prison in Illinois, right? I mean, what's, well, I mean, you know. If you want to be governor of Illinois, shouldn't like every year you serve as governor one year or one month should be in prison, mandatory? And then like, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, Beveridge does a very good job. Again, he's brand new to the job. The other guy got hurt, John Forsen, who later spent a career in the army. Actually, he's a, a lawyer from Chicago. He was a volunteer, Forsen, Georgia Forsen. And he uh, was uh, at... Uh, at Beecher Island in 1860s, you know, in Colorado. The other gentleman is uh, William Gamble. He's an, uh, an Irish immigrant. Uh, he was a professionally trained soldier. He's an engineer by profession as well. He actually ends up in Evanston, Illinois. Uh, his house is still there today. It's at uh, Northwestern University. 
I believe it's the admissions uh, building to the anthropology department. Okay. Uh, Gamble is a very good commander as well uh, over the 1st Brigade. And again, he's one of the few professional soldiers in uh, this brigade. They're all volunteers. Uh, Beveridge is a New Yorker, comes to Chicago, and he helps organize the 8th Illinois. So here we are. As Illinois, we can be very proud of this. And I'm going to break down each one of these as we go along tonight. Um, over 1,000 soldiers served in Gettysburg from Illinois. Nine were killed, 34 were wounded, 96 went missing. Uh, a lot of those that went missing became prisoners of war. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, too. 8th Illinois is the largest regiment. They have 470 combatants. One was killed. David Daffnow, five were wounded, one went missing, as, as you all just saw, commanded by John Beveridge. The 12th Illinois, commanded by an Indiana officer, George Chapman. Uh, and they are raised in Springfield, although a lot of uh, Chicago and suburbs uh, of Chicago served in the 12th Illinois. And 82nd Illinois is almost all Chicago uh, residents. Almost all of them are German immigrants. And so we'll talk about them a little later as well led by uh, Ed Solomon, who is a German-born uh, uh, immigrant to the United States, later became governor of Washington. He actually became good friends with uh, President Grant. So again, we had over 1,000 men. Now, there's 90,000 men in the Army of the Potomac. But we saw very, Illinois saw very heavy casualties and combat there. Look at the numbers. Um, where I'm from, Will County, uh, we sent 3,700. Uh, young men into the Civil War, and over 500 of them killed. Uh, one, uh, Colonel Bartleson, was killed at Kennesaw Mountain in 1864. So where I'm from, just south of here, Will County, we had a very high casualty rate as well. And there are, there are many uh, folks from Will County who are in, uh, in these regiments. One was Augusta Hill, later became U.S. Representative from Joliet, who was in the 8th Illinois. The 82nd Illinois is a really fascinating regiment to talk about. Um, they're German 48ers. They're very well educated. Most of them are. Some of them are young men. Almost all of them are German immigrants. A lot of them face discrimination. But we have to remember, they're, they're coming because of chaos in, in Europe. A lot of them were revolutionaries against the German government. And when we read a lot about them, the one thing that really attracted them, the United States, was the Constitution. Today there's 27 amendments to the Constitution. In their day, there was 12. The 13th came in 1865, so during the war. But they, you hear about them, they talk about the Constitution. You know, you know what your rights are when someone takes them away from you. Isn't that true? What's the beauty of the right to vote? You also don't have to vote. You have the right, the right to vote for you want, or not to vote. Or in Chicago, vote early and often, right? <laughs> you knew that was coming, didn't you? <laughs> you know what your rights are when someone takes them away. They knew what their rights were. You know, when you, when you read about the 48ers, they all kind of say the same thing. They, they kind of have this, boy, Americans are kind of naive. <laughs> 
Well, because they've never tasted the loss of their rights. Fascinating group of people. There's a guy named Zimmerman who does a lot of research on the 48ers and the Civil War. He was at the Civil War Institute a couple years ago. Carmichael had him speak. Um, you know, think about uh, Karl Marx. When is he writing a lot of his work? You know, we're going back to the 1800s. I mean, you know, he's a German. Later, he's expelled to, to England. You know, he's talking about the conflict of this time. You know, between uh, economic class and power. They lived it firsthand. You know, Karl Schwarz, one of the great leaders, he, he opposed the German leaders. These are people who are willing, what I'm getting at is this, these are people who are willing to risk their lives. They didn't come to the United States and then start to risk their lives. They were willing to risk their lives. They were willing to fight against German uh, uh, imperialism and German uh, government that was not democratic. So very interesting. Of course, Chicago has always been kind of a, a landing ground for immigrants. And of course, they're led by Corps Commanders Oliver Otis Howard, Carl Schwarz, and then of course Edward Solomon. You know, you could talk about Howard, General Howard. <laughs> he did a pretty good job at Gettysburg, but Chancellorsville, not so much. <laughs> what do they call Howard, General Howard? What's his nickname? Uh oh, yes, uh oh, Howard, yeah. He also didn't have, you know, Howard didn't have much of an affinity for German soldiers either, by the way. There's a lot of prejudice against these folks. By the way, they use the word Dutch, right? When you start reading Civil War history, if, if you're new to it and you haven't been to round tables or maybe you haven't taken a Civil War history class or anything like that, you start, well, Dutch, well, there's a lot of Dutch immigrants here. Come the they're talking about Deutsch, right? You know? <laughs> you know, they're not even getting that right. <laughs> Deutsch, Deutschlander, you know, German, right? Howard, where's Howard from? Maine. Who's the Vice President of the United States? And where is Mr. Hamlin from? Maine. Maine. Hmm. Coincidence? <laughs> Coincidence? I mean, yes, Howard was career army, West Point grad, named a university after him in Washington, D.C. Went out west after the war. Okay. Lost an arm. Dedicated to the cause. And we can certainly thank him for that. And he made some good decisions at, at Gettysburg, no doubt about that. Carl Schwarz is one of my heroes. This guy is, is fascinating beyond fascinating. His wife is the reason why we have kindergartens in the United States. You know that? She didn't invent kindergarten. She brought it to the United States. Kinder, child, German child, kinder, garden. School should be a garden. In Park, the, the Wisconsin people love this. I gave this some story last night. Parkside, Wisconsin was the first school district to have kindergarten. <laughs> I'm like, oh, this Flatlander actually took them in Wisconsin history. <laughs> Carl Schwartz is, I mean, Department of Interior, Secretary, I mean, brilliant guy. He's a very good commander during the Civil War. Um, he didn't have much of an ability or much time to exercise that ability at Gettysburg because of what was happening. We'll get to that in a second. But very, very fascinating guy. Okay. And he's also a major general. Carl Schwartz was a major general at the time of Gettysburg. And there's Lieutenant Colonel Edward Solomon. Again, another fascinating guy. Uh, 
he really seemed to be someone who knew everybody. <laughs> you know, he, he's got relatives in the, in the Union Army in the 82nd Illinois. Uh, he, te he tended to be one of those uh, very intelligent guy, very outgoing guy, very ambitious person. All right, let's get to the battle. Early morning, July 1st, Buford's right. By God, he's right. Henry Heath thought it was militia in Gettysburg. Henry, Henry Heath was wrong. Pettigrew, the day before, on the 30th, comes... Uh, one of his officers comes back and tells him, hey, that's no militia. Ah, don't worry about it. <laughs> he was wrong. Buford establishes this beautiful defense, this de defense in depth. And if you ever read Eric Wittenberg's research, great stuff. Um, and again, you, you're trading space for time. This is the kind of um, model that was used in the Cold War in Europe by the American and NATO forces to trade space for time. And Buford sets up this, this defensive depth, this vignette line, vignette line. And not only that, you're, you're, it's, a, it's an economy of power, of force. Remember, he's got breech loading sharps rifles. You know, so much more rapid firing. And Markellis Jones, who's from Vermont, later moves to Illinois, out in the suburbs. He fires the first shot. Now, again, where, where was this scene? Anybody been to Battle of Coppins in South Carolina? Anybody been to that national park? Oh, my God, I got you. This is great. My wife's been there because I, I brought her there. <laughs> I told her we're going somewhere nice. She goes, oh, this is great. <laughs> Took a left turn to middle of nowhere, and there we were at Coppins. <laughs> I said, this great? <laughs> she didn't answer. <laughs> it's a true story, by the way. <laughs> she goes, where are we going? I said, oh, we're great. Okay. <laughs> Battlefield. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I, write that down, Jamie. I gotta be <laughs> good. I like that. Good advice. Good advice. But you know, if you look at the battle of Cowpens, how do you how do you defeat a superior opponent? Difficult point. You know, a thousand cuts. A thousand cuts. That's how you defeat a superior opponent. Daniel, Daniel Morgan knew that. He had his militia in front of him. Beautiful defense, if you ever get a chance to go there. So we have seen this before. Of course, there was a double envelope that Morgan had that we don't see here, but that's something different. So Jones, he's at the um, Her Tavern. He's trying to have his breakfast. Word comes back to him. We're making contact. We're seeing dust in the distance. We're seeing movement. He comes rushing up. He takes Sergeant Schaefer's rifle, who he was friends with, by the way. He was friends with him his whole life. And he says, give me the honor of opening the ball. Remember, you're going to give orders of who lives and who dies. This is combat. Pennsylvania is free soil. This is free soil they're on now. This is different. Fight like the devil. 
Who's going to give that order? First off, Jones is. First order is, give me your rifle. I'm cracking off the first round. There's none of this bravado nonsense of, oh, we're going to whip them in three months and all this kind of nonsense. These men are hardened combat. These are killers. Marcellus Jones is a killer. He'll kill you. You're his enemy. He's going to kill you. He's not going to take delight in it. He's going to kill you. If he has to. Prefers not to, but he'll kill you. If you're his enemy, and Henry Heath is his enemy, he's going to kill him. Try to kill him. This is war. That shot wasn't necessary to, to pick off an officer. It's too far. It's almost a mile away. Or about a half a mile, three quarters of a mile. He's got a sharps rifle. Great carbine. But it's not long distance. That shot was to warn other people that we've made contact. We've made contact with the enemy. They're coming, just like John Buford said they would. And guess what? I may not survive the day. One of the 8th Illinois dies that day, David Daffinow. A shrapnel took off the back of his head. He was actually relaying a message back to Buford. Shrapnel from a, a shot came over his head and, and almost decapitated him. They have his name on the 8th Illinois Monument. That one shot bought the Army of the Potomac two hours. Buford knows that uh, Reynolds and, and the 1st Corps is about four miles south of Gettysburg. They're going to come up. There's a great article in Gettysburg Magazine recently about John Reynolds and the order. Should he stay? Should he, you know, you know, the, you know, uh, you know, the, the different defense lines that Meade had and all this kind of thing. That's great. That's, you know, <laughs> the Pipe Creek, Creek defense, all this kind of thing, which is good. Reynolds wasn't, we're not defending anything. We're not falling back anywhere. We're defending Pennsylvania. I live here. I'm from Lancaster. We're fighting here. The decision has been made. We're fighting here. This is free soil. We're free men. There were over 200 African Americans that were sent they were captured, free men and women, in Pennsylvania, captured by Lee's Army, Army of Northern Virginia, sent back to the South. Free, living in Pennsylvania. One of them lived right near the Angle, the Abraham uh, Bryant home, right there on the Angle, right near the Angle. Lived eight, you know, eight miles from a slave state, Maryland. That's pretty gutsy for that guy to live there. <laughs> That one shot, though, that one shot bought two hours. Uh, Keith Rocco, who's a, from Chicago area, Berwyn, happened to help write a book uh, Robert might be familiar with. <laughs> it's funny, when we have our board meetings for the Chicago Roundtable, I have this at my house, and, and so does Robert. I thought, yeah, you know, it's beautiful. It's a, it's a beautiful painting. I don't own the original. <laughs> um, there is Markellis Jones, Lieutenant Jones. There is Sergeant Schaefer, Levi Schaefer. There's that Sharps rifle. Off in the distance, you can see the, you know, the hot, humid day, the dust of, of 7,000 
Confederates marching down Chambersburg Pike, today Route 30, still called Chambersburg. That would have been me right there. Time to go. <laughs> that would be, I would be, you know, if I was in the 8th Cav, which I, you know, hey, but I'm the guy, I'll hold the horses for, you know, that's, you know, my union rep today told me today I, I hold the horses. Okay, you know, this looks like Buford seems a little agitated today. I don't, you know, <laughs> Lieutenant Jones is cracking rounds off. I, you know, <laughs> you know, I love this painting. I see this painting every morning. It reminds me why I'm proud to be an American because there are people like Marcellus Jones that are willing to risk their lives to do what he was, you know, this is an abolitionist outfit. They're willing to risk their lives. What do you want to die for? They don't want to die. Marcellus Jones, his wife in 1858 dies giving birth to their son. He went to war in 1861. Who's going to take care of your son? He's three years old. He remarries in 1864. Smart man, he married a math professor. <laughs> <laughs> so did I. <laughs> and then tragedy strikes him again. 1866, that son of his died. Today, in Wheaton Cemetery, right next to Marcellus Jones, is his son. How about that? He's a, he's a good man. Later becomes sheriff of DuPage County, retires, becomes a postmaster. Uh, Steve Buck, some of you know Steve Buck. Steve Buck was my roommate at JJC for a long time. He wrote a lot about DuPage in the Civil War. He said that, uh, you know, Marcellus Jones was very involved in GAR and all this kind of thing. His son is three years old, the start of the war. But I have a duty as an American. Some of you have taken an oath to the Constitution, like I have. You have a duty. This country is being torn apart. The Constitution means something. Being an American means something. And people like Marcellus Jones are going to defend it. They're going to defend it. Who lives and who dies? They're going to defend it. And by God, they did. And we can be grateful to, for them for doing it. This is the first shot marker right here. This is Route 30, better known as the Indy 500 of Pennsylvania. <laughs> this has been rehabbed. <laughs> National Park Service rehabbed. This is owned, this little track of land is owned by them. Uh, it looks beautiful today. I was just in Gettysburg over the weekend, just came back on Tuesday. Um, there's a little parking lot back there. Um, I don't know if that's just for the park employees. I was going to plead ignorance and beg for forgiveness if someone said something to me because I did park over there. And I said, you know, so I went over there. This is an older picture from a couple years ago I took. There's an up-close picture of the shot marker there. And there is Marcellus Jones. His birthday, my birthday is June 15th. This is June 5th. Every year, by the way, if you notice the small print here, the Civil Roundtable of Chicago put that in in 1976. Uh, Marshall told me years ago that that was actually a very unintended to grave, that he, he kind of, in his research, uh, found where he was buried in Wheaton, and in 1976, they rededicated his, his gravestone. Um, every June 5th, I go to that, his, his gravesite, and my father's buried at a military cemetery, Abraham Lincoln, he was a military veteran, and I 
I put a flag. You can't, it didn't come out in this picture, but this is the Illinois flag, and then here's the American flag. So I, I honor him. He, you know, he's not forgotten. He's not just a, a line in a book on Gettysburg. He's, he's someone that we should be proud of. We are, you know. But every June 5th, I put that there. It's my way of saying to him, my thanks. Not only as a historian, but as a proud American. What he did. What he did. Again, you know your rights are when someone threatens to take them away, don't you? You're dang right you do. It's a very dignified picture of him. He's later in life. He was born in 1830 in uh, Vermont. So it's a little bit later in life. He actually had another daughter with his second wife. Uh, she was born in 1868, I believe. So. Early morning, July 1st. Here comes A.P. Hill. Coming down from Cashtown, which is a really neat town, by the way. I'm doing the Gettysburg tour for Chicago Roundtable in 024. So, very good. And I was volunteered. Yeah. I, I got volunteered. John volunteered me. <laughs> Whoops. I didn't mean to do that. I didn't mean to do that. Um, Henry Heath is a fascinating guy. He, he actually knows Buford, as you mentioned earlier. Henry Heath had a lot of experience, um, but he was impulsive. Uh, he was undisciplined. Uh, he was fun on a Saturday night. You know, he liked to have a few cocktails. Hey. You know, he was, a, he, was a good, he was a fun guy on a Saturday night. I just don't know if you want to be, have him as your commanding officer in combat. He was aggressive. But what's Lee's order? Do not do what? Do not, yeah, do not bring out a general engagement. What does Henry Heath say? It seemed pretty clear to me. If practical, it's not a very clear order to me, to, to you, right? If practical, do what you got to do. Hey. Right? I don't know what that means, if practical. There's a lot of lawyers in here. Maybe you can explain it to me legally after the, the meeting tonight. But it seemed pretty clear to Henry Heath. Isn't that true? <laughs> don't bring about a general engagement. What does Henry Heath do? He starts the biggest, one of the biggest battles in North American history. <laughs> yeah, don't worry about it. I got it, General Lee. You know, hey, there's a few guys over there, you know. Uh, is that my Chicago thing? I'm sorry. I don't think Henry Heath has said that. He brings about a general engagement. Why? Because he's going up against the best. That's Buford. And he's going up against people who's going to kill him. That's the 8th, 12th Illinois, and the other members of the 1st and 2nd Brigade under Brigadier General John Buford. They're going to kill him. And so is his men. They're, they're trained as well. You know? But, you know, he's impulsive. Maybe Buford sensed that. I don't think he knew that Heath was down there at the time uh, on June 30th. He knew somebody was. By God, Gettysburg, that's the line of defense. I took this picture. Marsh Creek's a lot bigger than you think. Creek, you know, we're Illinois. Creek sounds like, you know, something you run through or, what, you know, when you're a kid or something. You know what I mean? That's, a, that's big. <laughs> By the way, I don't advocate taking this picture on this Indy 500, okay? <laughs> you know, I took it with my, Jamie, you never heard me say this. Uh, I took it with my cell phone as I was driving, <laughs> you know. I wasn't going to get out, <laughs> okay? And I thank Tim Smith over, who's obviously a great historian himself. He helped, he sent this to me, this picture. This is an old picture, or he um, led me to this picture. That's what the, the bridge looked like. The remnants of this bridge, look how beautiful it is. That's a, lot of, that's a lot of masonry work. 
um, the remnants of that bridge are still there. You can see it. You have to look north. When you go over the Route 30, you got to look north to your right if you're going west. Pretty cool. It's still there, the, the, the base of that. I love that kind of history. You know, in Gettysburg, you have a lot of history that's there. You know, there are a lot of original buildings there, you know. In America, something anything more than 40 years is old, right? Tear it down, build it up, you know. There's Henry Heath. Old Henry got wounded at, in the head there. Um, again, very experienced officer, West Point grad, but impulsive. And again, he did bring out a, better, a general engagement, didn't he? There's the great defense of Buford. Time for space, hoping that this is north, that's west. First course coming up, Reynolds, First Corps. And again, giving up time for space, here's Chambersburg Pike, west of Gettysburg. Here's Gettysburg, of course. There's Gamble, Devon, north of town. Buford at the seminary. How many people have seen the movie Gettysburg? Yeah, Sam Elliott played Buford better than Buford could play, but you know. <laughs> you know? If Sam Elliott was selling a bag of God knows what, I'd buy it. Oh, that's the best bag of, you know. Oh, Jamie, give me 20 bucks. I got to go, you know, Sam Elliott's selling something. I got to, you know. <laughs> it's got, what a voice, you know. But you know, the movie Gettysburg, it took a little liberty with a few things. Some of the beards were a little funky. <laughs> Pretty funky. Right? Just Tom yeah, just Tom Berenger's, yeah. <laughs> but what would Gettysburg do? It really kind of, of course, that came out in 92. It really, or 93, somewhere, it really piqued a lot of people's interest in, in Gettysburg, you know, which is great, you know. I like the guy who played General Hood. He's a, he's a character. Okay. Now, the 8th and, L, 8th and 12th Illinois. They perform this fighting withdrawal. Remember, <laughs> remember what Buford told Tom Devins. <laughs> We're going to fight like the devil tomorrow. I'm giving that order of who lives and who dies. Reynolds, again, I hate Monday morning quarterback. I've never been in the military. People talk a lot about Reynolds made a mistake. You should hit, I mean, first off, the Iron Brigade, they can kick care of business as they want. <laughs> I mean, you got the second, the sixth, and seventh of Wisconsin. <laughs> you know, you got the 19th Indiana, and you, you got the 24th Michigan. Believe me, those guys can take care of themselves. They don't need, you know, John Reynolds micromanaging them, uh -huh, for sure. But you have to remember, Reynolds, who's only 42, Reynolds, this is free soil. He's from Lancaster. We're going to finally get at him. We're going to now... What's Lee doing? He's taking a huge risk. By going into Pennsylvania, he's a long ways away from what? His supply lines, his base in Virginia. He's a, Lee knows he's taking that risk. He's got to take that risk. If he fights a defensive war, he'll get ground down and lose. He knows what's happening in Vicksburg. He knows what's happening there. Of course, it falls on July 4th, Vicksburg. He knows that. I've got one last card to play. I'm at the top of the power of my army of Northern Virginia. I've got to go north and seek out the Army Potomac and destroy it. He wasn't going to go to Baltimore. What are you going to do there? 
He just had to bring out that army, and he did. And he lost. He lost because of people like Buford and Marcellus Jones and thousands of other people like him. And of course, Lee made a few choices that maybe weren't so good. But Reynolds, think about this, a corps commander's killed. They wanted this guy to, to be the, you know, the whole uh, commander of the Army of Potomac. And he's, he's out within the first two hours of the battle. Can you imagine what Buford must have been thinking? Doubleday's now taking over the first corps. Wow. I mean, not that he had anything against Doubleday, but you know, you've got this whole corps. Okay? Fascinating stuff. So Buford deploys his men beautifully. And he gives the Army of the Potomac the two hours it needed to bring up its core. First core, third core, well, sorry, first core and 11th core, okay, of the left wing. De Dr. Abner Hart, anybody read his memoirs? It was published in, what, 1868? The first hospital or aid station was at the railroad station in Gettysburg. Okay, and there's his. There's the first casualty, David Daffanel. He was actually a journalist from Kankakee. Um, and again, he was delivering a message back to Buford on Chambersburg Pike when uh, he was killed. Uh, I later found out how he was killed. He was, as I said earlier, he was killed with shrapnel wound to the head. Who gave him that order? You know? Who lives and who dies? There's the railroad station today in Gettysburg. Beautiful structure, I'm sure all of you have seen it. And of course, Lincoln comes there on the 19th. You know, Robert used to be a homicide detective, but he's retired, so that, I mean, he's not getting called in. <laughs> he likes that joke, I'm sure. <laughs> Robert always said that, you know, being a homicide detective in Chicago is job security, you know? You're never gonna get laid off, you know? <laughs> Um, they actually have a museum there at this train station today, so it's a, really, it's a really neat place. A lot of history. Now, this is a little bit later on. I showed you a map earlier around 7.30 in the morning. Here we are about an hour later. Buford's running out of territory to defend. Here comes the first, ca uh, first Corps. Okay? Buford's got about 2,700 men. With, uh, you know, he, he's got, uh, uh, you know, He's trading at times for space, but he's running out of both. His back's going to be against the wall here pretty soon. Seminary Ridge, for those of you who've been to Gettysburg, is right where the town starts. And of course, there's the Luther, Lutheran uh, Theological Seminary is there. Wow. Um, so he's running out of time and space. It's a masterful defense. Reynolds comes up and he says, My core is coming. Can you hold? Buford said, yes, we can. We can hold. We can hold. I'll make them hold. Because this is where we're going to defend. Free soil at Gettysburg. It is good ground. Um, the first corps comes up under Reynolds. The 11th Corps, which is the 82nd Illinois Infantry, is in. They come up as well a little after that. But 
all of a sudden you have Ewell coming in from Carlisle, north of town. You got his whole corps coming down on you. You got two-thirds of A.P. Hill's corps coming down on you. From the west in, from the north coming down is Ewell. Now, in each corps is 20,000 men in the Army of Northern Virginia. Lee's got about 60, 65,000 men. Army of Potomac has about 90,000, maybe 70,000 in Army of Northern Virginia. Again, you're trying to put all this together. Buford doesn't necessarily know what's coming at him in terms of large numbers. That's 20,000 men. He doesn't realize Anderson, one of, the, one of the divisions, is not there yet. But he's hitting, getting hit with two divisions from the west of town, and he's getting hit with Ewell north of town. Uh, Ewell did not have one of his divisions as well. Uh, Allegheny Johnson. But again, they don't know that. They don't know that. Uh, Buford and Doubleday, as he replaces Reynolds, they didn't know that. And Howard coming up, who takes over overall command. He outranks them all. This is something interesting. Eric Wittenberg talks about this a lot. Things are going bad. You know, early on, the Iron Brigade decimates um, Heath's two uh, regiments coming, or brigades coming in. Uh, Archer surrenders himself and his, and you know, a lot of men. So things are going fairly well in the morning. But after about 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, things are going bad. And Buford, I believe Buford was about to sacrifice the 8th Illinois. He's got 470 men, minus a few wounded and David Daphnau being killed. He orders them, he, this is, he had a lot of respect for the 8th Illinois. Buford did. They were the first into Gettysburg. They were the first to fire the first shot. They were the first casualties. And he orders the 8th Illinois down Fairfield Road. There was a peach orchard. Well, I'm sorry, not a peach. There was an orchard there. I don't know what kind of orchard it was. I haven't found that out. Today, it's where the Gettysburg uh, newspaper is, that parking lot. I just had a Belfield guide I went with on Monday. Uh, we drove around looking at all the Illinois locations. And it's never a good idea to have cavalry attack infantry, especially out in the open. But he was going to do that because they could not cover that retreat. The first corps was about to be turned and in full retreat. Buford knew that, so did Doubleday. Doubleday sends that order down to Buford. Buford sends it down to Beveridge. And Beveridge, <laughs> think of that order. We're going to attack a brigade of infantry. We're cavalry. We're going to attack infantry in open ground. It's on Reynolds Avenue today at Herb's farm there. That's all open ground. You've all, you know, those, those have been there. Now, there's some debate about whether or not this Napoleon box happened or not. Um, Eric Wittenberg believes they did. Uh, again, these are a lot, lot of troops there. These are North Carolinians. Whether they had a, even a, a summons of a Napoleon box, which obviously came during Waterloo, Battle of Waterloo, maybe you're familiar with that, and Belgium. But the order was going to be given. Can you imagine that? It's a suicide mission. 
It's like, uh, you know, Midway, that first wave of American pilots going into those four Japanese carriers. <laughs> My God. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, Mark's right. But you have your orders. What are your orders to do? Attack. Because they're starting to rout the first corps. And at the moment of truth, that order is rescinded. Uh, John Beveridge talks about this, who's the commander of the 8th Illinois. He brought them into a trot. They went from a walk or a gaunt to a trot. Okay? And they made their presence known. So you're a Carolinian, you're going towards the seminary. All of a sudden, you see 470 cavalry soldiers, fully mounted. They stopped, pivoted, were about to take them on. The 8th Illinois did their job. They stopped them. They stopped, they stopped their movement enough to where the Pennsylvanians could, 121st, those guys, 151st, the Iron Brigade, they could retreat under some semblance of order. They did their job. <laughs> There's no doubt in my mind Buford was going to had a sacrifice, I'm going to sacrifice you. Who lives and who dies? This is free soil. We're going to fight you. We're going to fight you. Um, there's a general retreat through town. I get turned around in Gettysburg today. They have kind of like the crazy you know, streets and not even a big town. They have technology, right? <laughs> How do you tell someone who just marched all day to go and fight in the, in the noise and chaos of battle, oh, by the way, you got to go to Cemetery Hill now. Huh? Where's that? <laughs> you know, Wainwright, Charles Wainwright, the commander of artillery of the First Corps, he's he's thinking, and he's a very very good commander of his artillery. What is he saying? He confused the two: Seminary Ridge, Cemetery Hill. You know what I mean? What are you, what are you talking about? Seminary, cemetery. You know what, see what I'm saying? He was trying to figure that out. What what or, what do you mean? Seminary, cemetery Ridge. Semin I'm on. Is this cemetery? Are you talking about cemetery or cemetery? You see what I'm saying? in the noise and confusion of battle, okay? So, again, through town they went. Oh, real quick. I'm not going to talk about sickles, but I have to mention them. Um, they retreat through town, the 8th and 12th Illinois, the night of July 1st, and the morning of July 2nd, they're in the middle of no man's land. They're on Emmitsburg Pike, right? And then you have the peach orchard and the wheat field. Of course, you know all of that. you got the fish, fish hook there. Okay, Cemetery Ridge there. And Buford, and he's a cavalry officer. We're in the middle between two infantry corps. <laughs> it's not a good spot to be. Pleasanton orders him out of there. We all know Pleasanton's always very truthful, right? <laughs> Pleasanton orders him out there, doesn't bring his replacement. Remember, Buford's got a whole brigade. Wesley Merritt, who's a very good officer. He's got a whole brigade waiting to come up. I think Buford and, and Wittenberg talks about this as well. If you look at the ORs, there's a little bit of confusion, confu uh, conf uh, some confusion there too. About 1 o'clock is when Pleasanton starts owning up to Meade about what happened in the ORs. But they're only, those, those ORs are written by Pleasanton as only Pleasanton can write, the overall commander of the cavalry, okay? So Sickles is now without 
<laughs> a screening force. Of course, he does send, you know, Burdan over there and some main boys, okay, across uh, Emmitsburg, uh, Pike Road later on in the day. But let's put it this way. Sickles gets a little skittish, doesn't he? <laughs> okay. Of course, another guy who kind of confuses orders, I think. Uh, real quick here, I know. Um, I have a few more minutes here. Afternoon battle, July 1st. Here comes Ewell, 2nd Corps, north of town. Here comes AP Hill, west of town. There's Pettigrew, Lane. I talked about Lane earlier with the Napoleonic box. Here, here's Gamble. Here's the 8th Illinois right around here. Here's Gamble down in here, south of, of the seminary, right here, Seminary Ridge, and the Lutheran uh, Seminary. And you got north of town, here's Gettysburg College in that area. So it's, it's quite a mess over here. And the 82nd, uh, 82nd Illinois, led by Edward Solomon, they are ordered, led by Howard. Howard takes over overall command. Carl Schwartz is promoted to take over 11th Corps once Reynolds is killed early on first day. They go north of town. They're caught in the middle of nowhere. That's where the monument's at. The 26th Wisconsin, which is primarily German immigrants. So here you have the 82nd Illinois, after being decimated at Chancellorsville just two months earlier, now going north of town. There's about 318 men in the 82nd Illinois Regiment, led by Solomon. They go up and defend, or order to defend, two batteries. They're right between the two batteries. <laughs> Herbert Dilger happens to be one of the best artillerists in the Union Army. Guy's phenomenal. He later actually commanded the Illinois National Guard after the war. He is also a German immigrant. He actually won the, was, I didn't win it, he was awarded the Medal of Honor. And of course, here comes Ewell with his Rhodes Division and Jubal Early's Division that begin to arrive on the battlefield north of town. They're in a bad place. They're caught in a crossfire. They're someplace they shouldn't be. Barlow goes out way beyond his orders. So real quickly, here's north of town. There's Barlow. He's a New Yorker. He's an attorney. He actually founded the American Bar Association. Here's Howard commanding all troops there at the time. Hancock will come later in the day. Um, and again, here we are north of town. This is where, this is a beautiful photo. I, also, Tim Smith, uh, credit with him. Here's Hagerstown Road, or I'm sorry, Harrisburg Road. This is Ames House. This is uh, a house for people, it's like uh, people who are kind of down and out, they've lost their jobs, you know, things like that. Um, this is today an agricultural center. It's a community college right over here. And this is a real beautiful area. The high school's over here, uh, Gettysburg High School. This is his orders. He's supposed to be right here. He's nowhere near where he, he, he was ordered to be. He, he extends this beyond he should have. And uh, Schwartz was quite upset because Schwartz made it clear Carl Schwartz made it clear where he wanted Barlow and his division. 82nd Illinois, as I mentioned earlier, they begin to receive a lot of crossfire. You're out in the middle of the open. Many of you have been to Gettysburg, you know where they're at. They're out in the open. There is nothing there. You've got Oak Hill to your left. You've got Barlow's No or uh, uh, to your right. You're the, you can't defend that position. Uh, they, they do the best they can because they were given orders. You know, when you, when you look at a lot of these German immigrants 
as I said earlier, what do they talk about? It's the Constitution. It's the Constitution. Over and over and over again, they talk about the Constitution. That means something to them. Because they don't have any rights in Germany. It's the Constitution that means something to them. And they're on free soil now. Many of them were very much against slavery, too. Like Karl Schwarz. Okay? Barlow, being Barlow, I mean, you know, again, uh, he never, ever talked about making a mistake here in his life. He was terribly wounded, by the way. You can see what he's thinking. There's the high ground. But that's not his orders. His orders were to stay where he was at. So what happened north of town in the 11th Corps, again, Monday morning quarterbacking, Barlow shouldn't have been where he was at. And he got decimated. And he wasted a lot of, a lot of good infantry, uh, especially like 82nd Illinois, the 26th Wisconsin. Okay, very good Connecticut infantry regiment up there. And of course, that line collapsed. So does the First Corps, west of town. This is north of town, and they retreat through town. There is Herbert Dilger's battery. He was brilliant. Dilger was phenomenal. That's Oak Hill. So. Look how open that is. And there's Oak Hill right there. So if you're facing north, Oak Hill's to your left. And here's the line of retreat. Here is Doubleday Reynolds, First Corps coming through here, along with the Cavalry Corps uh, under William Gamble. And of course, Devon's north of town, the 2nd Brigade cavalry and here's Howard coming through town or Howard's 11th Corps under Schwartz coming through town here and of course luckily Howard picked Cemetery Hill as his fallback position brilliant people always talk about Ewell if practical should he attacked it let me tell you um, there was a lot of canister waiting for Ewell and his boys there a lot of canister canister it would have decimated them it would have been blown away whether or not they could have got up there. You get up there, you've got some agitated, hard veterans up there. <laughs> Starting with 82nd Illinois, the Iron Brigade, what's left of it. You've got some fresh troops up there that from the 11th Corps up there. But you've got canister. And they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna waste you. They're going to they're gonna blow you away. Okay. So you'll probably make the right decision. This is the Eagle Hotel. And I'm getting near the end of my presentation here. Uh, Emil Fry, who was from Switzerland, he later goes back to be the Prime Minister of Switzerland, he is captured and sent free of charge to Libby Prison in Virginia. How about that? 18 months at Libby Prison. Uh, this is where that 7-Eleven is. Anybody know what I'm talking about? That goofy little 7-Eleven? Here's this historic place. This actually burned down in 1960, the Eagle Hotel. This is where Buford stayed June, uh, June 30th. And what happens is this kind of became a magnet for retreating Union soldiers. And what were they thinking? I got cover. We can fight here. The Army of Northern Virginia, what did they say? We're not going to fight you there. We're going to burn you out. They gave them an option, surrender or fight. We're going to burn you out, though. They gave him 30 minutes to decide. There were a lot of people in that hotel who wanted to fight it out. You know? 
It's a heck of an option, isn't it? Who lives and who dies? They were willing to fight it out. There's Emil Fry there, the young man. Again, he has spent 18 months in Liberty Prison. God Almighty. He later goes back to Switzerland and becomes the president of Switzerland, the prime minister of Switzerland. Early morning of July 2nd, 82nd Illinois, recruited 50 men of the regiment to do what? House to house fighting. We haven't seen house to house fighting uh, in the Civil War uh, very often. We saw it at Fredericksburg. They're going to clear out those homes of, of sharpshooters. They were firing upon Cemetery Hill. They were firing on, on uh, Stevens uh, Artillery. Stevens Knoll is what it's called today between Culp's Hill and Cemetery Hill on the Baltimore Pike there. So Joseph Greenhut, who's from Austria, he recruits 50 men. How would you like to have that assignment? You just survived day one. You just survived in the 82nd Illinois Regiment, Infantry Regiment, just north of town. You just had 35% uh, casualties. You've been decimated. And yet, they're asking for volunteers for the most dangerous missions an infantry soldier can have. House to house fighting. And they raised their hand to do it. They did it. Think about that. There was one young man that they all looked out for. His name was John Ackerman. Young guy, about 19, 20, 21 years old. Beginning of the war, he was kind of young and brash. He gets some combat experience. He lost that brashness pretty quick. But they all kind of looked out for him. Now there's 318 men in the 82nd Illinois Infantry. Ackerman always would volunteer for the most hazardous duty. On July 2nd, this is something that's not talked a lot about at the Battles of Gettysburg, by the way, this house to house fighting. Primarily because those, a lot of those homes aren't there. There's a lot of hotels and everything in that area. There's a football field in that area now, which, you know, it just doesn't look like it did at the time. And Ackerman has a premonition. He's an experienced combat soldier. If I volunteer, he, he came, Greenhut came over to me and said, hey, you didn't volunteer. Why? Are you ill? Are you wounded? He says, no. I feel if I volunteer, I'll die. They respected him because he had volunteered. He's a soldier. He fights with honor. No problem. What happens to him? You know the story of Ackerman? A shell goes over. He, he's by the stone wall of the, where the cemetery's at today. He's, he's you know, waiting for his, his fellow comrades to come back. Who knows what's going to happen? Are we going to be attacked? A shell burst goes above his head and killed him. He's buried at Gettysburg today. Um, this was a successful house-to-house -house fighting, by the way. They did clear that out, the homes that they did clear out. They come back. You know the fighting on Culp's Hill and Cemetery Hill on the 2nd, July 2nd, and into July 3rd. The 82nd Illinois was sent to fill in gaps. George Green is defending Culp's Hill, brilliantly, by the way. And 82nd Illinois goes over to fill that gap against Allegheny Johnson's men of, of, uh, of, uh, of Ewell's Corps. Um, again, on the third day, 82nd Illinois holds their position over on Culp's Hill. That's some serious combat. You're north of town on July 1st and 82nd. You're on Cemetery Hill the night of, the, of July 1st. 
you're house to house fighting in the morning of the second, and then the afternoon of the second, and into the third, you're on Cemetery Hill, and then you're over on Culp's Hill. My God, that's serious combat. So a lot was asked of them. Those orders were to do what? Who's going to live? Who's going to die? This is free soil. Um, this is an area, this no longer exists. This is actually a gas station today. That building still exists today. Over here is that hotel, big hotels there now. 82nd Illinois is right around in here, this area. Cemetery Hill is just right over here in this area, right in this area. Uh, this is a gas station, as I mentioned. Over here, that building's still there today. You know what it is? I saw this building over the weekend. It's a palm reading. There's a palm reading company in there. I, I can't make this stuff up. It's a palm reading. There's a company that's palm reading, you know? Only in America, right? I mean, you know. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what they're reading, but I don't know. It's, I don't know. Maybe they do ghost, court, ghost tours in, in the summer. I don't know. But this wagon hotel, this was like a blue-collar kind of guy. The Eagle Hotel was for more middle-class people in town. And, of course, the wagon hotel is more the working-class folks. So this area, and that's why I don't think this is really talked a whole lot about. There's not a lot of information. Um, but 82nd Illinois did talk about it. So it was a very important mission they had that morning on July 2nd, clearing those houses out. And that's John Ackerman there, young man who was killed. Again, someone we owe a great debt of gratitude to as Americans. He lives today because we're talking about him today. He's important. He did his duty. He was asked to fight and he fought. And he died. All right, real quick here, Culp's Hill in the afternoon of July 2nd, as I mentioned before, here comes 82nd Illinois with the 45th New York coming over to fill in gaps. There's George Green over in this area. Here's the first corps over here. Here comes Allegheny Johnson. Here's Rock Creek. So if you're familiar with Culp's Hill, and there's Baltimore Pike there. This is where the visitor center is right about in that area. Um, this is really cool. We actually found this on Monday. This, is, this was taken July 10th, uh, 1863 by Brady. This is two of his assistants. That rock, I saw it Monday. The guide, the licensed battlefield guide and I, we went, here's the 123rd New York Monuments over there now. There comes the breastworks that Green built, or had his soldiers build. And that rock is still there today, obviously. So it's really cool. That's what it looked like. That's what Green and the 82nd Illinois were defending in that about area. And again, one last map here. Here is the action of July 2nd, the night attack. And L the 82nd Illinois was right in that area. Okay. After the war, Major John Beveridge, all three monuments at Gettysburg, 82nd Illinois Infantry and the 8th and 12th Cav. We're all dedicated the same day, March, I'm sorry, September 3rd, 1891. The dedication ceremonies was at the 8th Illinois Monument. And a lot of dignitaries were there. But I always love what John Beveridge had to say. You know, I, I don't like reading PowerPoints to you, but look what he says. The Gettysburg battle is fought. The victory is won. We won it. Our blood was spilled. The nation lives. Here on Gettysburg Field, the wave of the rebellion accumulated. A clump of trees now fenced in marks the spot 
where Armstead fell, symbolism for the Confederacy, and Cushing, Alonzo Cushing, disemboweled, fired his last shot with a last wave against the ridges and rocks, broke and receded, never more to rise. The high watermark of the Confederacy was defeated on free soil by free men. Governor Pfeiffer of Illinois at the time, in 1891, he was wounded at Vicksburg. He said, at his, and I had put it up here, he said at the dedication at the 8th Illinois, he said, did they really think, meaning the slave owners, did they really think we were going to surrender our country to you because you displayed a bowie knife to us? You think we were going to do that? We were going to surrender this country to you? Because you wanted to leave? Because you're, you're, you're a slave owner? And he said that. The glory of the whip. And you display a bowie knife to us? He was wounded at Vicksburg. He's the governor of Illinois in 1891. That's what he said. This is 30 years almost after the battle. These are powerful emotion by John Beveridge and uh, Governor Pfeiffer. We can be proud of these men, what they did. 